So this week's question is, is the Bible trustworthy or is the Bible reliable? Or how do you know the Bible's true? There's, you could rephrase this any hundreds of ways, right? And you may have actually asked this question or you may have had this question asked of you uh, or you, who knows? It, it could have been any number of things that could have come up in your life where this question's ar- arisen and you have to find an answer. So why is this important? Why is this important? Is the Bible trustworthy? I was just reading this morning, I saw a headline uh, on a news app that I've got that talked about fake news, right? Everybody knows after the past two years, fake news is, is everywhere, right? Everybody's got fake news or real news, and it's hard to tell what we got. What we do know we have is a lot of information at our fingertips, don't we? We have so much information. I could pull up my phone right now and, and look through hundreds and thousands of information, sites of information. But as awesome as that sounds and as helpful as that can be and as, as great as that is to have that at our fingertips, you would think that it would, it would give us some certainty in our life, but I think actually what it does is breed some confusion, doesn't it? To have that many sources to pull from, what do you trust, right? How do you know what your reading's true? It's hard to know sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you can talk back, it's okay. It's hard to know sometimes, right? I mean, what you're reading on Twitter or Facebook, you're like, oh man, that sounds so real, and you find out a week later, that was a total hoax, right? <laughs> right? And you, at the time, it looks good. It looks really good. And so what happens when we have this come up over and over and over again in our lives, it creates this skepticism and inherent doubt, doesn't it? It's like, well, I don't know if I believe that. And you want to wait and double check before you say, oh, yeah, that's good to go, right? And sometimes you never know. You just have to kind of take it on faith that maybe it is, maybe it's not good. So when we're awash in all this information, when we have all these opinions that are dressed up as fact in our lives, what that drives us to is to question everything, doesn't it? It's like, man, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. And so it's hard to latch on to something that's completely and utterly true. And that prevailing cultural shift affects everything, right? Faith included, especially faith. Matter of fact, I would say that's one of the first things it's, it creates doubt in is what we believe. So every week we've been answering questions about faith using the Bible as our source. I say it every week that we go to this source because it is the only source that I have, uh, that we all have, that has the truth in it. But... If we're constantly doubting, if we're constantly questioning, the question comes up, is it really true? So it's critical that we know that our source is reliable so we can separate fact from fiction, so we can separate real from fake, so we can find certainty and unity amidst doubt and division, right? So let's answer that question this morning. And the way we're going to do that is asking a couple of questions first. So first of all, what is the Bible. You ever thought about that? Oh, well, I kind of know what it is. I kind of see it. I kind of flip through it. I I understand that it's a book, but there's some misconceptions out there. So I wanted to lay out a couple of things that the Bible isn't first. One, it isn't a book that arrived in some complete form at one point in history. Now, let let me clarify that. Today, we have publishing companies, right? And matter of fact, Print is on its way out in some ways. Today we have apps that deliver books to you. Kindle, right? Amazon Kindle will deliver a book to you immediately, right? You can just start reading it as soon as you purchase it digitally, right? And so we have these companies that give us this information all in one time right now. The Bible never, ever came that way. Now you can get it now on your phone, but it never at any one point in history arrived as one complete book. There wasn't some country, there wasn't some person, there wasn't anything that ever said, okay, all right, we're just going to publish this one thing right now. We've got all information. We're going to put it out all in one shot. It never arrived at any one point in history. 
It didn't drop out of heaven, right? It didn't just come miraculously down and fall down and say, okay, here we are, here's the Bible, this is the, this is the truth. It didn't happen that way either. It wasn't drafted up by a person or even a group of people. None of those. None of that happened that way. So whatever your preconceived notion of how a book is made, it didn't happen that way with the Bible, all right? It's completely different. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. Try to wrap your head around that. 1,500 years that this Bible was put together. That's a long time. And it was by a number of authors. That's the movie, sorry. If you hear the mumbling, that's the movie downstairs. And although it's viewed as one book, what we have in our hands is a collection of books, a collection of letters. In the New Testament, we actually have Paul's mail, essentially, is what we have in our hands here. It's not just one book. It's a lot of different books, a lot of different letters, a lot of different things put into one binding, all right? So it's not just one thing. We have poetry, we've got sayings, we've got it all in there. And it's awesome, but it's all collected over a long period of time. We call it God's Word. Typically, you'll hear me refer to it as God's Word because it is viewed as God giving us this Word. He didn't physically write it. He didn't sit up there with a heavenly pen and put it down and then just pass it off to somebody down here. That's not how it worked. But God inspired people, everyday people, just like you and me, inspired them to record the history of God's interaction with his people. That's the Bible. A record of God interacting with us and him using people to write it down. So how do we get the one we have today? All right, so that's the Bible. It's God's word. He inspired it. People wrote it down through numbers of years of history and eventually it was collected together. So how do we have the one we have today? Now the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as we're going to refer to it as, is primarily a record of God's dealing with his chosen people. So everybody knows or maybe you've heard the Israelites uh, way, way back when, hundreds of years ago, right? They were chosen by God as his people. And so they began to collect the things that God said to them. And Moses was one of the first people who did this. You remember the Ten Commandments, and God gave him the words on the mountain, and he passed down to his people these stones. And he got mad one day and threw them down, so he had to make more, right? And so these words were kept, and they were expounded upon, and God gave other people words to write down. And so there began to be a, just history recorded, of how God was moving among his people. We have a small library in our hands when we hold the Old Testament because it's a collection of books over a thousand years in the making. Now, since we're talking about thousands of years, I think it's important to note because I think we have this other misconception about the Bible is that, well, again, it, was, it must have just been, you know, somebody must have been copying it or maybe there's a, a printing press or something, so the originals had to be around here somewhere. We don't have the originals. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because if you're talking about thousands of years ago, you got to think about Moses, right? He wasn't up there typing out the Ten Commandments on his laptop and saving a copy to the cloud, okay, <laughs> right? He was doing this by hand, and then it was passed down by hand, and then it was copied by hand, and all it was by hand. And so the records that they kept, while reliable in their day, are hard to maintain over long periods of time because they decay and they get stolen, and things happen, and just, just craziness happens because the ancient world wasn't this nice, neat little box that we wanted to think it was. And so the originals we don't have. What we do have is a copy, carefully handwritten copies of the original. Now, obviously, they didn't have a Staples. They didn't have a home printer. None of that was available, right? They had to actually do this by hand. There were people who were tasked with ensuring that they were accurate copies, very accurate so that no information was lost. Now, remember, this was a record of God speaking to his people. This wasn't tax records, okay? So nobody was, this wasn't just useless information. They didn't care if it got lost or not. They were specially concerned. It was a very serious business of copying God's word. 
There was a famous quote in the Jewish Talmud, which is an ancient collection of, of Jewish writings. It's not in the Bible. It's another set from a father who's ascribed to his son who's learning to be one. He says, my son, be careful because your work is the work of heaven. I think I have that slide, Jane, if you had that next one. He says, be careful. There you go. Because your work is the work of heaven. Should you omit even one letter or add one letter, the whole world would be destroyed. Now, obviously the whole world wouldn't be destroyed, but that was their thinking. That's how serious they took the job of copying these texts. It wasn't just somebody in a back room just saying, oh, well, let me get through this part of my day, right? This is very serious, very serious business. They didn't want to make one mistake. So at one point, we don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly who. Nobody ever, it never says when or who. But the various texts from Moses all the way down until you get to a couple hundred years before Jesus were collected together. And they were put together and they were copied and they were all put in one spot. So they all had one location. Normally they had multiple scrolls that were all collected together, right, as they had copied them. And they're all combined and they were written in the ancient Hebrew. But as the world often does, it changed. And if anybody, anybody history buff, by the way, before I go into the history of it, anybody a big hit? Nobody's history buff in here? Just me. Wow. Okay, Walt Burns is a history buff. All right, so you remember back a few hundred years before Jesus, around 300 B.C., there was this pretty, pretty famous guy. He was called Alexander the Great. All right, maybe you recognize him from history. Maybe you're thinking back to your history books or maybe your school. Alexander the Great, all right? And by the way, Alexander the Great. How awesome is a name is Alexander the Great? Who wouldn't want that name, right? Alexander the Great. I'll stick to, you know, I'll, I'll just settle for Jason the Pretty Good, right? <laughs> Alexander the Great. Pretty epic. <laughs> Alexander the Great was an awesome name because he did some great things, all right? He was a Greek, and his mission in life was to conquer the whole known world, and he did it. I can't remember what age. My history is a little fuzzy, but he was very young by the time he actually did it, so he was pretty successful. Now, it wasn't the whole world, but it was every, every, the world that everybody knew at the time. And so he conquered all of this. And everywhere he conquered, he brought the Greek language. He brought the, the Greek culture with him, all right? It's kind of like if you imagine how America, particularly back in the, uh, well, 80s and 90s, how it was a capitalism against communism, right? And then if we were going to win, we had to go in and establish democracy and freedom, and we we're going to change the world by, by doing that. And so Alexander the Great was, cha great was changing the world by spreading Greek culture and Greek language everywhere he went and everywhere his troops went. And they would make settlements, and they would stay there. And so the world began to change. All these different languages became essentially one language. If you wanted to trade, you wanted to make any kind of money, you're going to speak Greek. All right? So they began to speak Greek, and began to trade in Greek, and they began to do these things. And so Greek became the common language of the day. So here you have Hebrew-speaking Jews who's collected the Bible into Hebrew, or the Old Testament Bible anyway, their Bible, and they collected it into, Hebrews, into Hebrew, and, but now you've got Greek people who are speaking Greek, and you got Greek Hebrews, Greek Jews who are speaking Greek now, and so they have a problem. They say, well, we've got this Bible that's been written in Hebrew, and we understand it, and we read it, but we don't speak it anymore, right? It's, it's, it doesn't work for us anymore, and so they understood that they had to change, or they were going to lose their culture, the Jewish culture at the time. They were going to lose the key part of who they were, the only reason that made them who they were, and so they said, okay, we're going to set aside a group of people, and they're going to translate the Hebrew Bible from the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew that we don't really speak a whole bunch anymore, to the Greek. 
And so that's what they did. After years, quite a few years, they translated it from Hebrew into Greek. So the next generation will be able to read and understand it. And we call that today the, the Septuagint. You can actually find a copy of it. If you could read Greek, you can read the Greek Bible that they translated hundreds of years ago. Right? So they did this, and they translated it over. And it became a standard translation that everyone thereafter began to use, because, again, everybody used Greek. Everybody spoke it. So the less logical question is, for a skeptic in particular, would be, how do we know they didn't mess it up? All right? If the Hebrew people collected it, they wrote it down in Hebrew, and you've got to translate a whole thing over from Hebrew to Greek, how do they know they didn't screw some stuff up? That's a lot of text, right? That's a lot to copy, especially by hand. Now, that would have been a really, really, really hard question to answer about 100 years ago really hard. Couldn't really prove a whole bunch to it. We had one text that wasn't, uh, that was in modern Hebrew, not ancient, that you could have compared, but we didn't have a text that lined up around the same time until they found, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but they found about 50, 60 years ago what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, I think I have a picture of that. It's pretty small, but I think I have a picture. There you go. There's a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the story goes that there was a, uh, a shepherd boy who was this is not the Christmas story, but there was a shepherd boy who was wandering through uh, an area, part of the Dead Sea with his flock, and he came upon this cave. As he, was, he threw a rock in a cave, and it hit something that sounded like a clay pot. So he went down and looked, and he found a bunch of scrolls like this. And they were very well preserved, because in the Dead Sea, there's not a lot of moisture, so you have a lot of uh, dry air, and so it wasn't being deteriorated as fast. And so and they were kept very well. And so they found these scrolls, and what it was, there was this group of people who had broken off, and they had their own little home in these caves close to the Dead Sea, and they wrote down the ancient Hebrew Bible from before the Greek translation, okay? And so they had the copy of the the text that was combined originally before it got translated into Greek. And so what we can do now that we have these to look back, and it's not the whole thing, but it's a lot of it, enough that we can verify uh, a lot of the Old Testament text. What we can do now is we can take the Hebrew from before the Greek translation and compare it and see, okay, did they mess up the translation? And what has been found after decades, and they're still doing this, studying it, after decades of comparison, line by line, letter by letter, don't you want that job? Letter by letter, comparing Hebrew to Greek just all day, that's all you do? Yeah, me either, right? That would be horrible. But somebody's doing it, and somebody loves it, I'm sure. And so they're doing it. Decade after decade, they do this. And they found that there is hardly any variation between the ancient Hebrew and the Greek, hardly any at all. And the ones that are is just slight spelling errors, not even a thing that would change a word or anything else, just a slight spelling error here or there, or maybe taking a conjunction and, and spreading it back out as we would do in English. Just small grammar things that don't change the meaning of any of it. And so what we have is a verifiable, reliable information source we can check with what we currently have in the Greek and know that they didn't mess up hardly at all. And what they did, just copy errors mess up, was not significant to change what our faith is. It was a significant find that really changed the whole, uh, if you look into textual criticism, and we won't go there this morning, but if you look back in church history, it changed everything. Because the skeptics didn't no longer have a leg to stand on and say, well, how do you know they didn't mess it up? We can look. We can verify. They didn't mess it up. And so we have this translation that we have in the Greek that matches up with the, the ancient Hebrew, and it all adds up. So we have a pretty good case for the accuracy of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament we have today in your Bible, obviously, is not in Greek, unless you can speak it. And again, you could find one, but it's not. 
is in English, right? And so we have an English translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. If you have a good translation, then you'll have a text that goes back to the original Hebrew and the Greek, and they'll check both before they convert it to English. So we know that we have what it was originally there. Now, we also have that in the case of the New Testament. Now, the New Testament, very brief, because it's a pretty brief section, right? It's not a very big part of our Bible, is a collection uh, of the first century accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, right? And the struggles that new Christians faced in this Roman world that they were in. Again, going back in history. Don't mean to bog you down too much, so I don't want to get too into the weeds of that. But it's one of the most well-documented texts of the ancient world by a few thousand manuscripts. All right? If you want to verify that something's accurate, you need a lot of copies, right? Because more copies by more people means that you can check more sources, right? And so the New Testament stands head and shoulders above any ancient document ever. Anybody remember, again, going back to history, so I'm sorry to bog you down. Anybody remember Homer or Plato in the ancient Greek, right? Remember maybe thinking of philosophy, you know, Homer, Plato, Aristotle, those ancient, all right, let's take it one more. Anybody remember Caesar, right? The Roman, the Roman emperor, right? At least you can maybe remember Caesar, all right? There's only five verifiable documents that, were, that actually point to Caesar. Five. Just five. And yet we are pretty sure that he existed, right? There are only a few more for Aristotle. There are only a few more than that for Plato. There are only a couple of uh, dozen or a few more than a dozen for Aristotle. These have very small manuscripts. When you look at the New Testament, you have over 6,000 copies. 6,000 copies. We can prove without a shadow of a doubt that the New Testament is one of the most reliable, accurate texts in the history of ancient texts, right? It doesn't get more verifiable than the New Testament, which is great news because, again, the skeptic will say, how do you know? Because we can go back and look. We can see the, the copies of the first originals and know that they didn't mess this stuff up. Now, obviously, it's been translated into various languages, and there's been some copy errors, but again, nothing has majorly been modified. It's all copy errors and, and minor uh, spelling changes, things like that. Nothing that changes the, the central belief of Christianity. So a good skeptic might ask one more question. They could say, isn't it possible, isn't it possible to have all this be accurate, to know that, okay, you got a good text. Maybe you've, you've gone back and you can verify that the, the copyists didn't make major errors. You got all that done. But how do you know that it's from God. How do you know that a man just didn't make it up? All right. First of all, again, hundreds of years. One, one thing I always point to whenever somebody asks me that, you're talking about 1,500 years, people who never knew each other in most cases. People lived hundreds of miles apart in most cases from way back before Jesus all the way to 100 years after Jesus, writing these things out and when you read through it from beginning to end, the whole thing makes sense together. There is one coherent story from beginning to end. Now, this isn't somebody who's edited it down. This isn't somebody who says, oh, I got I to gotta make sure I, me I don't mess this up so the story stays the same. This is a coherent story told by one person from the beginning of time to the end of time, but not by one human person, but by God himself. The word inspire, which is what we believe the word is, comes from the Latin meaning to breathe on or breathe into. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. 
There's this Bible scholar who once phrased it this way, inspiration is the process by which spirit-moved writers recorded God-breathed writing. And what inspiration means is that human writers were inspired by God and moved by the Holy Spirit to record accurately what God wanted them to preserve. It doesn't mean that God took control. I mean, I had this image in my head when I say that. It doesn't mean that God took control of someone and made them write something out. He didn't force their hand like a hand on a Ouija board or whatever weird stuff you do, right? None of that. This is God giving them the information and then recording it the way he wanted them to. It doesn't also mean that God was giving them dictation. God didn't say, okay, Moses, uh, he did for the Ten Commandments, but past that, he didn't say, okay, Moses, make sure that you write down every single word I say and don't mess this up. No, that doesn't mean that either. What it does mean is that their words were divinely inspired and recorded. What's key to remember is the Bible was written by real people living in real places, recording real historical events that we can verify and communicating God's real truths. Now, one thing I'm not going to go through today because there's so much of it, and I would encourage you to do that. If you ever have a question, well, I, don't, I still don't sure if the Bible's true. Look online. Check a couple of different sources. Look up the archaeological evidence for the history of the Bible. There are every day, literally every day, new things being dug up that are verifying that the history of the Bible is true. All over the place. All over the place. They just found a coin that had King David's name on it that wasn't there before. Nobody knew that was there before to verify that there actually was a King David. All these things are verifying over and over and over again through secondary sources, that the Bible is God's inspired word and is real and it is true. Now, if you were to go to a car dealership and you were to purchase a car, and you go in and you're going to the car and the salesman or the saleswoman, whoever, comes out and they're going to happily show you that car, right? They're going to be all over you like white on rice. As soon as you step on the lot, they're out that door ready to sell you a car, right? There's one thing I can't stand is pushy salesmen. But they're there, especially on a car lot. So they come out, and they're ready to sell you a car. And one of the first things they're going to tell you is what? What's the first thing? You think, well, they're going to come out, they're going to sell you the car. What's some things they tell you? You can talk to me. I'm gonna be honest with you. Oh, I'm going to be honest with you. That's a good one. All right. Yeah. What do they tell you about the car? What's one of the first things they say about a car? Or second. It could be four people looking at it. All right. All right. That was the honest part. That was the honest part. That's right. What about how reliable it is, right? Man, you're going to love this car, this thing, especially if you're talking, I don't know what it is. There's this thing with, I don't know about saleswomen. I haven't ever been sold a car by a woman, but I've been sold a lot by a man. If my wife's standing there, the first thing he's going to tell her is, that, oh, you're going to love this car. The safety features are through the roof. It's the most reliable car you can ever drive, right? You're going to be able to ride this thing for years, and it's going to be just taking care of you. I don't know what it is with men and women trying to sell things, but go back to the reliability. They say, oh, it's super reliable. They're going to love it, right? And they'll list off all the awards it may have earned. If you've got a used car, maybe they'll check off and print the, the Carfax out or whatever, and they'll give you all the information saying, oh, this is going to be super reliable. You're going to love this. It's going to be great. It's not going to break down on you. Now, while it's nice to know that a car is reliable, and that's, that is nice. I, I like hearing it myself. As nice as it is, is that the reason you're buying the car? No. No, there may be a number of reasons why you choose the car, but the reason you're buying the car is to do what? 
to get you from point A to point B, right? So you don't have to walk, right? That's why you're buying the car. Now, as reliable as the car is, and that's helpful to know, you're getting it because you got to get from one place to another. So in a similar way, while it's important to know that the Bible is the, one of the most, or is the most, reliable ancient texts we have, and we can know without a shadow of a doubt that it's God's inspired word, as good as that is, that's not enough. And that's not the reason you're going to trust in the Bible. Not ultimately. The Bible's job isn't to let you know it's good and trustworthy. The Bible's job is to point you from where you are to where God wants you to be. That's it. Now, it helps to know, and it's great to know that you can rely and trust that the words are true. But his job is to take you where God wants you to be. And the way it does that is by pointing everything in the Old Testament toward Jesus, forward towards Jesus, and everything in the New Testament backwards toward Jesus. That one story I told you the Bible tells, it's about him. It's about him. As truthful as this word is, it is true because it points to the truth. And his name is Jesus. That's it. You can look up massive amounts of information online. You can double check and triple check sources. You can look at all these things. And it's going to be hard to tell real news from fake news. But I can tell you this morning that Jesus is the truth. Bottom line, in a world of doubt and skepticism, that is a certainty. That is a certainty. And when you encounter the truth, it pierces through you and searches out whether you're true or not. And that's where it takes us to when we read the Bible, is an encounter with a real God, a real way, a real truth, pointing to a real life. That's why it exists. That's why it exists. The point of the Bible isn't to draw attention to itself, but to draw our attention to the one who lived, who died, who rose again, and who lives now. That's the entire point of the Bible. And I pray that by the end of this, in the next couple of minutes, that if you don't have that relationship with him, you have an opportunity to take that step of trust with the truth this morning. Before we do that, what's some action steps we can take? Now that we know the Bible, I pray we know. And again, there's much more evidence that I can't tell you. This is a college course that I distilled into 15 minutes, and it was super hard. <laughs> All right? So what's some action steps we can take if you'll flip through that action step? All right. You can read it. That's the first thing you should do. All right? You should read it. All the stuff in this world that you could pick up every day and read, all the websites you can go to, and you have to sift through the junk to find some good stuff, this is the one thing you could read every day that you know that's true and that you don't have to, to worry about. Read it with confidence knowing that a world of information and min- misinformation, that the truth isn't out there, right? I love, I'm, I'm a 90s kid. I remember, anybody remember the X-Files? I don't remember the theme song anymore, but remember the X-Files, the truth is out there, right? That's what everybody said, thinking there's some other source of truth. And there is, but it's not out there. It's right here. It's right here this morning in the Word. So read it. Find a translation or a version that you can read or understand. This is the key. Catholics use Latin sometimes. I can't speak Latin. I don't know if you can. If you can, come and talk to me in Latin after. I'd love to, love to hear it. I can't speak Latin. I can't speak Greek or Hebrew. I was not a very good uh, translation student, all right? I'm still working on that. And I love to go back and look at the Greek and Hebrew because sometimes they mean a little different than, than what our Bible says here. But I can't speak it offhand. And if you can, that's great. And maybe you could use a Greek and Hebrew translation. But if you can't, find another one that you can read and understand. 
There's probably about a thousand variations of translations of, of this text out there, all right? Now, some I would highly recommend and some I might not, but the best translation there is is the one you can actually read and understand, all right? That's the bottom line. If you can read and understand King James, great. If you can read and understand Latin, great. If you can read and understand Greek, great. Whatever it takes for you to read and understand, that's the one you need to read and understand, all right? Okay. And do more than one. Do more than one. You don't have to hold on to one, one translation. You can look up multiple translations, okay? There's tons of them out there, and maybe you can find one like, wow, I understand this one better, and that's great. Read through more than one. And if you're still struggling and you can't find one, ask me, and I'll help you find one, all right? It's important to find one you can listen to and, and understand. Third thing is be accountable. Be accountable. Ask each other. When you see each other, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to have to prompt you. I can, but I don't have to prompt you. Ask me. I'll ask you, you ask each other, what are you reading this week? That's a simple question. It doesn't have to be too probing. You're not trying to find out, you're not trying to be a policeman or elf on the shelf or anything. You're just trying to say, hey, hey, what you been reading this week? You know, it'd be the same thing if you're, help, if you're working out together and you wanted to, if you're not doing it together, maybe you're doing it on your own or homes. Hey, did you work out this week? Just a friendly question to make sure they're on track. What are you reading this week? One cool stat I found if you read the Bible just six minutes, just six minutes each day, you could read the entire Bible in two years. You know, some people look at this and they think, this thing is way too big and way too hard for me to understand for me to be able to read. How in the world can I make it through this thing? Start in chapter one of Genesis. Six minutes. That's all it takes. Now, if you're a slow reader, it might take you know, a little longer than two years. Six minutes each day. All right. That's longer than it takes to make breakfast, all right? That's, that's longer than it takes to warm something up in a microwave, really, in some cases, depending on what you're eating. Six minutes. If you can't find, uh, if you're having a hard time finding a hard copy, there's tons of Bible apps on there. I encourage you to look up any of those. Uh, read through it. Just pop up your phone. Read the news. Read the Bible six minutes. Check it off, right? You're on with the day. Six minutes. You read through the whole thing in two years. But be accountable. Because each of us holding each other accountable is going to help us stay on track. It's going to help you grow closer to Jesus. That's, that's the bottom line. You come in here is going to help. We getting together and doing serve teams together helps. Us doing events together is, is great. But that's what's going to drive you forward. When I'm not here, whenever you're, somebody else is out of your life who maybe is not helping you, if you go to this every single day, that will keep you on track. Reading promotes relationship. Now, if you're here this morning, and you aren't sure. And I love people who come in who are not sure about their relationship with God or Jesus. Maybe you come in and say, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if I really believe the word. But I don't, it sounds trustworthy, but I don't, I don't know if I got it yet. Or I don't know about the Jesus you keep talking about. I'm not sure about him either. And that's okay. All right? Let me, let me lay that out right now. All right? I'm not here to, to force you to accept Jesus because I can't do that. I'll tell you about him because I know how he's changed my life and how he's changed so many of the lives in this room through that relationship. But if you're not here and you're not sure, that's okay. But what I will challenge you to do, take and read it. What's it going to hurt? It's not, right? Just take and read it. Find out what God says when you do it. You're going to be surprised. Take and read it. Read the words of the one who is relentlessly calling you 